This pandemic has demonstrated how quickly our individual liberties can be taken away, even in liberal democracies. Governments have given themselves emergency powers, the implications of which many of us don't understand. These powers and secret indemnities remove accountability for serious harm and mismanagement. In this environment, we've also witnessed tight control of information and mainstream media and big tech have emerged as effective enablers. So why would we think that governments would stand up for freedom of expression or fight big tech and media censorship? During COVID-19, the focus of concern in this country is not hate speech, but misinformation and its danger to public health. But the arbiters of misinformation, government, mainstream media and big tech have been the greatest promoters of misinformation during a pandemic, all in the name of public interest. Houston, we've got a problem. Brian Martin is Emeritus Professor at the University of Wollongong in Australia. Professor Martin has been a prominent supporter of academic freedom and has made a great contribution to the research and commentary on dissent, free speech, whistleblowing and advocacy. Professor Martin, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Look, you've been studying the suppression of dissent for a while. Can you tell us what you mean by this and what your study covers? Well, imagine that you're a scientist and that you're studying something that's a bit controversial. It could be forestry practices, climate change, uh, nuclear power, uh, trans issues, whole range of possible issues, and you publish something or you plan to publish something, and then you run into trouble. And it could be that uh, your boss says you're not allowed to give a talk. could be that your research grants are cut off. could even be that there's an attempt to smear you in the media. So this is what I call suppression of dissent. Someone who uh, takes a view that is challenging to someone who's got power and suffers attempted or actual reprisals as a result. Have you got any measures on how serious, though, the issue of suppression of dissent is in Australia, and maybe uh, using COVID, because it's a fairly hot topic at the moment? Okay, well, let me go back uh, to early days, because I started studying this with environmental scientists who came under attack, and that was back around about 1980. So this has been going on a very long time, and... It's found through nearly every field that you can imagine, but a lot of times you don't find anything out about it because people don't want to go public. Just a few prominent cases like Peter Reard on climate change. And so it's everywhere and yet very very low visibility. And certainly COVID is bringing out a whole bunch of cases. Nothing nothing too surprising. the challenge is what to, what to do about it. So what do you do about it? It's, um, if you look at big tech and all those, they've, uh, and, and mainstream media and government bureaucracy, any conversation about COVID, unless it's along the narrative, which is um, you know, very lopsided, what do you do about it? Well, one of the angles is what I call censorship backfire. And Sue Curry Jansen, who's at Muhlenberg College in Pennsylvania, and I developed this idea. So sometimes 
uh, censorship can actually be counterproductive for the censors. In, that, in other words, it leads to greater attention to the thing that's being censored. And what we did is we looked at the methods that censors, and it could be suppressors or whatever, people in, in control and who want to stifle some idea, the methods they use to reduce outrage. Now, people are outraged by censorship usually because it's you know, no one wants to be called a censor. And one of the crucial ways to do this is to hide the fact that censorship is even occurring. And I think we see this with COVID, with the with uh, Google and Facebook. They don't have a big advertisement every time you log in to say, we're not giving you results on certain viewpoints. They just go about, they change the alg algorithms that they use. And yeah, there's a bit of publicity, but mostly people don't even notice. And then a, a second method that is used to reduce outrage is to denigrate the people who, who are being censored. So we've got a bunch of labels, you know, the conspiracy theorists or anti-vaxxers and so forth. So if you can discredit the people who are being censored, well, people don't think it's so important because, you know, it's all right to censor a loony, surely. And so if you're looking around to see, hmm, is there something suspect going on, as soon as you see these sort of labels being used widely, then that's a warning signal. And then we come to the method, which is probably the most legitimate, which is to give an explanation for the censorship. And it might be to say, well, we're protecting people's privacy or there's dangers to the public. And yeah, that's you could say that's fair enough. And I think that's that's the area where you say, well, let's have a debate about it, not just censor and, and leave it there, but let's have a debate about issues and and then, then there's the say, oh, we've got the official channels. So the official channels would be a complaint procedure. You say, oh, if you don't like our policies, then, you know, look at our regulations and you can put in a complaint about it. And that doesn't do anything. It usually does, do not, does nothing at all. And the final method that uh, censors use to reduce public outrage is intimidation. And this is where the suppression gets serious. So if someone's, you know, is potentially going to be deregistered as a doctor for speaking out, well, they're, they're probably not going to speak out. They'd have to be very courageous to do so or be retired, something like that. So those are five methods that are used uh, to reduce public outrage about censorship. And I think we can see all of those being applied with COVID. And the the way to challenge it is to challenge each of those methods. So that's to expose the censorship, to give credibility to the people who are being censored, to give reasons why we need a public debate on an issue of public importance, and to not not bother with the uh, official channels and to stand up to intimidation. Sounds straightforward, but it's not easy to do. Well, it's not, is it? The, uh, for example, you know, we're a, um, not a giant organisation, and that's probably one of the understatements of, of the year, and the year being so short. Uh, but we had a, a wonderful interview with a, a politician, uh, Craig Kelly, and it went up for probably an hour and was taken down on, on YouTube. And uh, we appealed it. We said, we're just having a discussion. We're not doing anything else. And we got a reply back uh, two days later, um, appeal rejected uh, and a PS, by the way, if this happens again, 
Uh, you're off for a week. If it happens again, I think you're off for a month and then that's it. You're, you're gone. So the censorship part, there was, you know, no one saw it on, on uh, YouTube. It was just taken off immediately. The appeal was, was dead in the water before we, we had started. And, and uh, we, we, we knew from the start that we had no show at all. What does your study show, though, about, say, in Australia, about media and big tech censorship and the trends here? I mean, is it, is it just one of the things you talked about, maybe just shut them down or, or say that they're a crackpot? Look at Craig Kelly, for example, uh, labelled by um, the, the left and labelled by uh, media, big tech, as just a crackpot and almost a, a dissident. Look, there's there's no protection from these sort of things. And I mean, a classic case is Linus Pauling, who had two Nobel Prizes. But then when he took up an unorthodox theory about uh, vitamin C and cancer, then he was just labeled as as a loony. So it wouldn't matter if Craig Kelly was you know, the prime minister. If you run against the orthodoxy. There's you know, it's very, very difficult. And I'd say, you know, your example, you've illustrated the official channels don't work. But the thing is, when people realize that censorship's going on, then they may be more interested in the thing that's being censored. Mm. So that's that's what you've got to rely on is having alternative channels uh, to get the message out. And I think the interesting thing about it today as compared to 30 years ago is with the Internet it's impossible to totally shut down ideas because there's so many alternative channels of social media and so forth. So we're on a different sort of uh, playing field than before. Mm. Not that it's any easier, but it is. Uh, there are alternative ways to get ideas out. Ideas and the sharing of ideas, discussing those ideas, and then you might put it in the uh, too hard basket or continue later on. That's what we're all about, just talking about these ideas and developing, and for example, in science with COVID. I mean, if we go, if we went by the original, say, just in medicine, uh, I think uh, none of us would be here now. It's always evolved and uh, uh, new medicines and vaccines and approaches are always on the horizon. Uh, in the US, uh, your comments on um, uh, the, uh, they're, they're trying to shut down the conservative media, and this is right up into, into Congress itself, with Pelosi and, uh, and uh, Schumer and all those. They, they actually want the carriers of that particular cable network, such as Fox, Blaze, uh, American One Network, uh, Newsmax, they want them to stop carrying that. That's another way of censorship, isn't it? That's for sure, but I'd say uh, my my reading of the political censorship is that it takes place on both sides. Mm. And uh, and so basically whoever has got power often uses it to censor the other side and that they seem to have no qualms about doing that. So it's it's very hard to sort of sit in the middle and say, I disagree with your viewpoint, but I think it ought to be heard. Mm. And that's we need more people saying that. But that's, you know, it sort of p puts you in the in the middle somewhere neither side really wants to hear you because they don't agree with the other side uh, coming out. And anyway, that's mm. that's my experience is that uh, I think we need a few more people who are looking at it from the wider perspective mm. of let's have a debate. Yep. And, and, you know, your view may be goofy, but 
rather than just shutting it down, I'll explain why it's goofy and let people decide for themselves. Mm. What about bullying by the media? There, um, you know, we're we're not a large landscape here. We've got a uh, a, f- a few mainstream medias, um, and they always attack Murdoch for being too right. But um, you just look at news.com.au, one of the great left publications of the times. Um, but the bullying part seems to be, you know, it's like almost the pointing of the finger, shut you down, uh, tell everybody that you're a wacko, all the things we talked about before. What recourse do the victims have, though, in Australia to, to stop this bullying? And, you know, sure, we may be able to go down the, uh, you know, the legal path, but that costs money. And if you're a small, you know, small operator, you ain't got much of a show at all. Well, the legal path is a is a trap because mm. basically whoever has the most money is going to come out ahead. Mm. And the 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 trouble with this is that uh, you know one one side has a lot more money, and they can just use that to railroad over others. And there's no easy way around this. The alternative or the challenge is to mobilize a larger group of people, and that's us. A slow process, so it can be building a network of people who are concerned about it, you know, raising a different idea, and just gradually building the network, showing to the people in that network that you're sensible, that you're open-minded, and that you're, you might say, credible. And if you do that, then you can build up a uh, a following, if you like. Not following is not even the right word. You can build up a group of people who actually care about a search, search for the truth rather than knowing the truth and shutting down those who don't agree with it. But, you know, easier said than done. It's mm. uh, it's not it's not something that someone can do overnight, but there are people who are pushing in that direction. But that direction in Victoria isn't seemed, uh, isn't, isn't welcomed at all by the Andrews government, that collective that decided to voice their opinion i mean we've all seen the um the the footage um pepper spray and uh, arrest uh, even the media were were arrested at one stage um that's another form of i suppose censorship by fear so the thing that happens here is that if if that sort of uh control call it social control goes too far then it can generate resistance and so that's uh what we've seen already is that people are resenting the controls because they're too heavy-handed. But the other thing we need to look at is that uh, there's a lot of contingency. There's, and just occasionally you get something that breaks the dam and, and suddenly the alternative views start coming out. And you could say the Me Too movement was that. So you had sexual harassment and rape going on for a long time. But then just one or two people speaking out about a particular case and suddenly a whole bunch of others willing to speak out. And so my guess is that when there's going to be, there could be, I'm not going to predict, make any predictions, there could be a case where the, the orthodoxy or the establishment actually are, ends up backing the wrong decision. Mm. And we see this. Let's let's. You can imagine. I'm not going to predict it, but imagine that if a vaccine is approved, that it turns out to be more hazardous than the protection that it gives. That's going to discredit the uh, the orthodoxy. Mm. So there's a risk. And here's the strange thing. I tell people who support the standard view, the standard government view, if you shut down all the critics, you're shutting down the possibility of learning 
but from what the critics have to say and protecting the establishment, if you like, protecting the establishment from making a terrible blunder. And you could say this, that some of the wars have been fought. The, the critics of the wars were shut down, but turns out the critics later on are acknowledged. They had a lot you know, going for them. It would have been better to listen to them. So we can always you know, look in retrospect and say what would have been best, but it's very hard to do that in the current situation. Interesting times, though. We have, um, in a, I mean, look at Australia, uh, look at the US, and we sort of follow Australia, uh, follow the US. Um, used to take three or four years or five years before uh, uh, technology really got underway. Now it's, it's you know, within 12 months. Um, do you see censorship, you know, aka 1984, do you see that being um, a continuing problem that will escalate? It certainly seems that way, uh, it's, and it's. I think one of the symptoms of this is the use of the word conspiracy theory, which is tossed around to uh, to try and discredit anyone who has an unorthodox idea. And this is especially true with COVID, where there are a lot of scientists and doctors and others who are questioning the standard view about you know the origin of the coronavirus, uh, the use of treatments for COVID, uh, the control measures, a lot of critics and, you know, you might say, well, they may or may not be right, but if you shut them all down and then it later turns out that they were right, that's going to be bad news <laughs> for the establishment. Mm. It's, mm. it's like, like mad cow disease in the UK. Suddenly, you know, the scientists are all saying, oh, it's all safe, blah, blah, blah. And then, whoops, turns out we were wrong. Mm. Well, it's causes a crisis in the establishment at that time. It's um, questionable what is the uh, the next pandemic. Um, many say free, the lack of free speech and the control from state and uh, a small number of large businessmen, uh, which we could probably rattle off, but I ain't got a lot of money for lawyers' fees, so I'm not going to mention their name at the moment, but they're always out there. Uh, Professor Martin, a real pleasure uh, talking about such a serious, serious uh, subject. Um, I don't see it getting a whole lot better. I mean, uh, I'm, 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 I'll be struck off YouTube shortly. Uh, Rumble's pretty good. Locals.com's another one. Uh, but there's, there ain't that much out there. And as, the, um, as they get stronger, unless you do fight back and um, fight against this uh, unwarranted censorship or control of power, uh, I think we're in, as they would say in the classics, deep doo-doos. Professor Martin, thank you very much. Thank you. All the best. Daniel Tang is director at the Epic Times in Australia. The Epic Times is one of the largest independent Chinese language news media groups in the world, headquartered in New York City. The Epic Times has experienced censorship in many forms and most recently on YouTube. From the Epoch Times, or as some say, the Epic Times, Daniel, welcome. Thank you very much, Mike. Look, there's been much blatant censorship by big tech in the US. Can you tell us how your publication, uh, Epic Times, uh, has been targeted by big tech and the impact of this? Absolutely. So uh, the best way to describe it is you could say probably that over the past five years, the walls have been steadily closing in on um, big tech's uh, restrictions and you could say censorship of the Epoch Times and our content on their platforms. 
So as a way of example, YouTube has demonetized all our videos as of, I think, January. Uh, prior to that, we published a documentary talking about the Wuhan virus. And this was in the early days before there was a lot of um, before the WHO could get in there and do their own investigations. And our documentary talked about well, proposed presented a number of facts which could which really supported the idea that the virus could have originated from a, a lab. Now, of course, we didn't make any solid assertions on this because it is, you know, something that's not easy to verify. But that video was slapped with a false um, label by Facebook, by their fact checkers. So that was another instance. And um, one long running in, uh, issue we've had is really with the um, ability to advertise on Facebook and Google as well. So a lot of our posts on Facebook, we can no longer promote them or advertise them uh, and yeah there's just a lot of restrictions on them overall and this overall trend has been really happening in the last five years when we began reporting heavily on the Trump presidency mm-hmm. and what's been going on there and that's attracted a lot of attention and a lot of flack from not just big tech but also a lot of mainstream media outlets like NBC and CNN. What about the Epoch Times in Australia? Has it been censored also? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so whatever happens in the US, it has a spillover effect in Australia. So essentially we can't use uh, YouTube or Google to do any sort of marketing or advertising campaigns. Now, the the importance about these channels is a lot of media and companies use Facebook and Google to really just advertise and get their products Mm. out there. Uh, That road has pretty much been cut for us, uh, particularly on Facebook. Google, there are still some opportunities there. So we used to be able to publish little posts on Facebook and put money behind it and get it out to as many users as possible. But that that road has been pretty much just been shut to us that door. Uh, and what was interesting when you when you when you said that question was I thought back to our Chinese publication. So going back twenty years, Epoch Times or Epoch Times started as a Chinese language publication and grew steadily its influence. And we experienced a very similar situation with the Chinese. The parallels are sometimes a little bit uncanny, actually. So the Chinese, in the Chinese sphere, we found that we're not able to use WeChat, which is a Chinese state-sponsored social media platform. Mm. WeChat has tremendous uh, influence in the community, in the Chinese-speaking community, and is obviously the most popular app in China. So being on that platform is essential for the growth of the media. But that door was shut to us many years ago. So the Chinese Epoch Times has had to really adapt and be quick on its feet in how it engages with readers and reaches out to people. And it really does look like the Epoch Times English edition is going through a similar process as well. Australia has seen many examples of uh, censorship from Twitter and Facebook, including Mm. that of politicians. Uh, In the US, it becomes big news, especially when you you censor a politician. Uh, In Australia, it doesn't seem to be the, the furor, the, the uh, excitement generated by such as, say, Craig Kelly when he was taken mm-hmm. off Facebook and we had a, um, an interview pulled off by YouTube. Do you think Australians, part of the nature is to think, oh, well, it's, yeah, so be it, it's not going to affect me. But in reality, it does affect people, doesn't it? Yes, it certainly does. I think Australia is... From our reporting and how we approach certain things, we're not at that cutting edge of what happens, like, say, in the U.S. So in the U.S., Donald Trump was taken off Twitter, and 
you know, can you imagine if Scott Morrison was taken off Facebook or Twitter mm. altogether? Uh, the furor that would cause. But Australia has been relatively insulated from those sort of incidents. So mm. that kind of leads to our population being a little bit more, mm, how would you say, not maybe even laid back mm. or just not as aware of these issues. And there is that Chinese saying, you know, the the frog in the boiling water, like we, where the frog is just sitting in a kettle of water and it's been lit on fire and it's slowly boiling, but the frog just keeps, you know, swimming along. It doesn't feel any pain. It just thinks, oh, this is rather comfortable. But by the time the water reaches boiling point, it becomes too, it, it's just too late. The frog is dead. Mm. So that's a situation I find that we find that it's not isolated to just Australia, but a lot of countries where we're quite comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not faced with those decisions where we really have to make a choice on what's right or what's wrong. Uh, we don't have a, a banning of our prime minister that's or our, our nation's top leader that the U.S. has gone through. So that might in some ways lead to why mm. our attitude towards Facebook and Google may not be as, as critical as in some other parts of the world. Could last week's deal between the government, big tech and major media organisations discourage uh, diversity of opinion? It's an interesting question. I think there's been a lot of banter around that. Um, I would argue a way to look at it is really that these deals being done by Google, Facebook and the major media, for the major media, they're really a short-term adrenaline boost. And why I'd say that is if you look at across like Seven West Media, um, News Corp, revenue overall has been stagnating or has plateaued over the last five to ten years. And when we do interviews with um, experts in journalism, even they admit that getting payments from Google and Facebook are not going to resolve the fundamental issues with journalism or newspapers in Australia. Uh, Although it may help in the short term, it won't really uh, save the media and address what is really the declining newsroom, uh, declining newspapers, etc., so I think that factor is really important to look at as well. We're, we're facing a bigger reckoning in the next few years, I mm. think. Um, media outlets really will need to work out how they position themselves and how they can revive their, um, their, their newspapers. How will publishers such as yourselves uh, fare under the legislation that was passed last week? We're investigating our options. I think a lot of the, the publications, um, you've got the big tier ones and the mid tier publications. They've they've managed to strike a few deals with Google and Facebook and mm-hmm. generate um, you know generate a bit of income from that, which is uh, which is quite um, positive. I think for us, we'll certainly look forward to striking a deal and being able to support more journalists. And I think there's certainly a demand amongst Australians for information that isn't towing a particular narrative or agenda. There was a survey just released by Edelman uh, probably a week ago, and it found that close to 70% of respondents to that survey believe that mainstream media in Australia were busy pushing their own ideologies more than objective facts and reporting. So that's a pretty damning assessment. And I think about 60% believe that journalists were more focused on exaggerating facts than reporting objectively. So when you really think about it, there is this lack of trust in the media that Australians have, and there is a demand for you know, objective journalism that mm. isn't 
tainted with agendas or narratives. And so going forward that we hope that we can get a bit of support, but also push a little bit harder in terms of objective reporting and mm. truth-based journalism, I guess. If somebody wants to find out more about the Epoch Times or Epic Times, uh, Daniel, how would they do that? Absolutely. So readepoch.com.au is one way to look at subscribing to our paper. Otherwise, you can just visit our main website, theepochtimes.com. Fabulous newspaper. Always read it and uh, keep up the good work. Daniel, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Mike. And that's it for Asia Pacific Today. Thanks for joining us. I'm Mike Ryan.